Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So, um, after our introduction to this study last week on the Locust Sutta, pointing out that it is uh, ignorance of Four Noble Truths that leads to eye-making or the passions uh, that lead to a world of flame, uh, we saw how relevant uh, the Buddha's Dhamma is 2,600 years after he first presented it in, presented it in relation to current events. Um, so in this sutta, the Nagara Sutta, um, this is one that brought great clarity when I first came across it. In other words, I was able to start putting the pieces together of what the Buddha was teaching when I read this sutta for the first time. And uh, if I was emperor of the Buddha's Dhamma, I would make this a prerequisite. In other words, this should be something that every uh, Dhamma practitioner should read and understand because it describes the Buddha's resolution of his own ignorance and what that ignorance of Four Noble Truths formed in his mind. And it is this understanding that he describes here that led to his description uh, in the Paticca Samuppada Sutta of Dependent Origination, from ignorance of Four Noble Truths comes all manner of suffering, and his establishment of uh, four truths as noble truths, meaning that these are the four truths that as Dhamma practitioners we must understand. They're noble because they relate to the Dhamma as opposed to the truth of the sky is blue when the sun is shining. It's a truth, but it's not a noble truth because it doesn't relate to the Dhamma any more than the truth of where I'm going after this life or, or what gods are taking care of me. Those all may or may not be true, but they're not noble truths. They're not relevant to the Dhamma. Um, and this, this sutta really teaches why, why those things aren't relevant, why they're just a distraction, because those are things that we grasp after to continue eye-making. The, the Buddha was at Savati, at Jita's Grove, and Natha Pandika's monastery. There he addressed those gathered. Friends, and this is an important line right from the beginning, friends before my awakening, when I was only an unawakened bodhisattva. And so... Uh, Many years ago, I took the Bodhisattva vow, which was my introduction, um, you could say my, my novitiate vows into Buddhism, uh, because I thought that the Bodhisattva path was the path. In fact, it's almost, the Bodhisattva path is the path taught by almost every school of Buddhism, even some Theravadan uh, schools. Uh, the Bodhisattva path is br briefly, uh, that I forego my awakening until all other sentient beings are awakened. That denies the first noble truth right off the bat. Uh, so after I took my vows in a, a weekend-long ceremony, about two weeks later, I had an actual ceremony where I disavowed them because from the time I took that vow, it bothered me and I couldn't understand why until I put that together. That it, It's just a ridiculous idea. It's a, it's a nice woke idea that... I'm going to be so selfless that I won't awake until all other sentient beings awaken. But again, that denies the Buddhist teaching. He taught, he, he spent the last 45 years of his life teaching so that I could awaken no matter who else awakened. Those with only a little speck of dust in their eyes. So again, something that is common, it sounds nice, but it has nothing to do with what the Buddha taught. 
But you can become distracted by it like I did. Can I ask you? Please. What exactly got you to... What was the trigger that, that got you to renounce those vows? Um, I took the vows. It's such a good question. Um, I'm just trying to decide if I want to say where I took the vows because I don't want to denigrate the school. No. Um, but it was someplace where you were near in the Catskill floor. Um, I took the vows because I thought I should take the vows. It was, it was part of a practice that I was following. Uh, it was an important part of that. Uh, and, I, and I was also spending a lot of time at this particular monastery almost every week, and I'd go up there for their services. So I was, uh, I was affiliated. I was associated with this. And so this opportunity to take this... Um, this, these initial vows, um, and it happened to do when uh, it, uh, I was going to say that the the, uh, the guru, but I won't because that'll identify. He was he was someone who I had great respect for. So the idea that I could be part of this weekend, uh, take my vows, and be on my Buddhist way um, to maybe doing whatever. You know, I didn't know if I was going to become a full monk or anything, but that was my beginning. So that was why it was it was really my association with the group that caused me to take my bodhisattva vow. I thought it was the right thing to do. But I also had a lot of misgivings. It didn't, it, I was going along with this practice and putting great effort into it, even though I didn't believe wholeheartedly in it. It was a, a, a kind of a generic modern Buddhist practice in a very specific lineage. They, they adopted many of the modern things that we call modern Buddhism. As soon as I took it, as soon as I said those vows in front of this man that I respected a lot, I had feelings of misgiving, that this, this just doesn't seem right, that I'm working so hard to be awakened, even though I understood what it meant, and now I'm taking a vow that I won't awaken until everybody else does it. It didn't even make any sense, but I didn't quite understand it until I actually studied the Buddha's Dhamma. And so again, within about two weeks, I realized this is not something I want because it was such a intentional um, experience, I felt like I needed a commensurate in, uh, intentional experience to disavow it. And it wasn't done in a group. I did it by myself in a kind of a natural setting, and I just made the strong intention that this was not for me. And I'm glad I did. I'm glad I went through that little ritual because that helped focus my mind on what I was eventually going to discover. So thanks for the question. Um, the Buddha continues, I came to the realization of the difficulties of the world. Now look at it. The, the world is both um, the, the practical description of what goes on in the world, but the world is also a metaphor for each individual in the world. The world is born, it ages, it dies, it falls away, and it returns. So again, the Buddha's not talking about, I've got to say it quickly, the Buddha's not talking about reincarnation. He's talking about the proliferation of human population. There's always people dying and there's always people being born. It's just part of the world. The world is born, it ages, it dies, it falls away and returns, but there is no understanding of the ending of, stre of the stress and suffering of aging and death. We live for millennia without any understanding of what, and the, again, no understanding of aging and death, meaning no understanding of what it means to be a human being. Then the Buddha says, when will the world understand the cessation of stress and suffering from aging and death, from having a human life? When will we? It's almost a pleading, isn't it? How can we maintain this ignorance for so long? Then the Buddha says, I had the thought, what is it that initiates aging and death? 
What is the requisite condition that aging and death are dependent on for arising? What do we think it is? For my appropriate mindfulness, again, notice the, the, the verbiage here, appropriate. It's not just any old mindfulness, not the, 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 the modern worship of mindfulness that we have today, but a very specific, appropriate or refined mindfulness. From my appropriate mindfulness came a breakthrough of understanding. Again, that appropriate mindfulness must be established before a breakthrough of understanding can occur. And how is that done? Through the Eightfold Path. From that appropriate mindfulness <clears throat> came this breakthrough of understanding. From birth as a requisite condition comes aging and death. As a consequence of having a human life, there's going to be aging and death. And in other words, in other words there's going to be stress. There's nothing personal. Immediately, the Buddha is saying, as a consequence of having a human life, there's nothing personal about stress. If you're here, you got it. Then, the Buddha says, I had the thought, what is it that initiates birth? What is the requisite condition that birth is dependent on for arising? So now, this is important. The Buddha is not talking about creation or a physical birth coming into the, into the human existence. The whole premise of the Buddha's Dhamma is the, the effects of ignorance of Four Noble Truths. So what he's talking about is giving birth to that moment of ignorance. What is the requisite condition that birth of ignorance is dependent on for arising? From my appropriate mindfulness again came a breakthrough of understanding. From becoming as the requisite condition comes birth. From becoming what? From becoming ignorant of Four Noble Truths. It's, and that's done, excuse me. That birth of ignorance is not a process. The birth of ignorance happens in one thought. And it's a thought that is aligned with ignorance. And from that one thought, from that agreement of ignorance or the self-identification, given birth to ignorance, one thought, it leads to all the other thoughts that follow. The problem is we are not well concentrated enough to catch it. And most of us are too young. We're born. We're born into this process of birth, aging, sickness, and death. And so like Siddhartha Gautama, even at the age of five, he had an inkling that something wasn't right. But it wasn't until he was mature enough to, to develop an understanding at the age of 35, after much study, much right effort, that he developed this understanding. And so he went from a child with misgivings about his life to an adult. That's how he described awakening, full adult maturity. He now understood at the age of 35 something that, I'm not going to say no human being ever understood, but most human beings don't understand and cannot understand until we introduce this Eightfold Path. Now, I think I had a talk, it might have been with Jeff, I'm sorry I don't remember Jeff, about people in the world that are naturally calm and at peace no matter what's occurring. And do they know the Dhamma? Well, I don't know if they know the Dhamma or not, but good for them that they have developed a calm and peaceful mind. I know that mine wasn't. And mine wasn't until I came across the Dhamma. So and what I'm saying is I don't care how many people there are that are naturally calm and at peace with what occurs because I know that I'm not. I need a path to, to bring that to bring that forth in myself. And you wouldn't be here, you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that same reason. And aren't we fortunate enough that we have the simple eightfold path to develop the common peace of a Buddha? So then the Buddha says, let me go back to that. From becoming as a requisite condition 
comes birth. Then I had the thought, what is it that initiates... Ah, I missed the line here, I'm sorry. No, that's, that's right, I'm right. Then I had the thought, what initiates name and form? Self-identification. What is the records of condition that name and form is dependent on for arising, identifying with ignorance of four noble truths and stress? From my appropriate mindfulness came a breakthrough of understanding. From consciousness as a requisite condition comes name and form. And again, this isn't some grand cosmic consciousness. In the context, it's consciousness, it's ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. So now the Buddha is describing the formation of this feedback loop that he found himself struck in, stuck in. I am identifying myself with stress and suffering. And I'm stuck in that self-identification by ongoing thinking that is in itself ignorance of the thing that's causing my stress and suffering. Is everybody following me? It's a bit convoluted, isn't it? But that's our thinking. And that's why we can't explicate ourselves. That's why we can't recognize this thought is stressful, let me not have it anymore. Rather than this thought is stressful, let me keep having them. Which is what we do out of ignorance. We don't understand the birth of stress and suffering because we don't understand the birth of ignorance. From, my, from consciousness as a requisite condition comes name and form. He just described that feedback loop. Then I had the thought, what initiates this consciousness? What is the requisite condition that consciousness, ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths, is dependent on for arising? From my appropriate mindfulness came a breakthrough of understanding. From name and form as a requisite condition comes consciousness. From self-identification with phenomena comes ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. Self-identification, eye-making. What we talked about last week, the passions that, that fire us into, into poor behavior. That was our friend Devlin. Uh, let me just continue then I had the thought, this consciousness turns back at name and form and goes no further. The Buddha is describing how we live a life rooted in ignorance. Our consciousness, our ongoing thinking, turns back at self-identification and gets stuck there. Our thinking gets stuck at eye-making, taking things personal. And that's the key to de- developing the Dhamma, recognizing and abandoning all eye-making at the point of contact. How do we do it? through jhana meditation, through concentration, and refined mindfulness, or appropriate mindfulness. It is to this extent that there is birth, aging, death, falling away, and returning, meaning like a Groundhog Day. We keep recreating the same circumstances of our discontent by this feedback loop. Does everybody understand that, at least least on the surface? Does anybody not? Please, Please let me know. Online? No, no, no. Let me just read it again just to make the point. It is to this extent, meaning getting caught up in this feedback loop of consciousness stuck at name and form, self-identification. It is to this extent that there is birth, aging, death, falling away and returning. Now again, the Buddha is not saying that this confused, stuck way of thinking gives rise to physical birth. It is this confused, stuck way of thinking that gives birth to another moment and another moment, and another moment, rooted in ignorance. This is where ignorance is established. Oh, these are my words. Sorry to be so emphatic on that. (laughs) 
This is where ignorance is established from self-referential views. Name and form is the requisite condition that brings consciousness. And from those self-referential views, consciousness is a requisite condition that brings name and form. The Buddha continues. Then I had the thought. The sixth sense base, which is the five physical senses and that consciousness, the sixth sense base is dependent on the condition of name and form, condition on self-referential views, and this is the origination of the entire mass of stress and suffering. From 2,600 years ago, the Buddha is still declaring the problem, self-identification with all phenomena arising and passing away, all impermanent phenomena. And then the Buddha says, and he's, he's pointing us to what, what we will develop through the Dharma. Vision arose, understanding arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illuminating insight arose, true vipassana, arose within me with regards to things never known before. That's such an important line. It, it, it kind of threw me for a loop when I first read it. Excuse me. Why is that? Because up until that point, every Buddhist school that I studied in, and I studied in all the major ones with some of the most major teachers, all said that this, the Buddha came across, or Siddhartha came across, a, a path that was taught by endless Buddhas going back into the endless path, and that Buddhas into the endless future teach the same path. Where the Buddha said, this path was never known before. He discovered it. And why is that important? Why is it important? I wonder, let me ask Ron, why is that, that line important, things never known before? <clears throat> It's a tough one to really get yeah, that. It, it, because it puts the Buddha at, at the beginning of this. Yes. Yes, and what he's saying is all these other confusing things are not it. All these ideas, and there was, there was great so-called spiritual religious um, establishments and lineages during the Buddha's time. And they're saying, none of those are it. And they were all comparable. You know, remember the, the Aditya Pariyasana Sutta? They all had elements of, the sa of sameness to them. And the Buddha said, this is something different. Pay attention. These things were never known before. Then he says, then I had the thought, what is the condition that the cessation of stress and aging, aging and death is dependent on? From my appropriate mindfulness came a breakthrough of understanding. From the cessation of the birth of ignorance, excuse me, from the cessation of that one thought, my words there, as the requisite condition comes the cessation of the stress and aging of death. From the cessation of the birth of ignorance as the requisite condition comes the cessation of the stress of aging and death. From my appropriate mindfulness came a breakthrough of understanding. From the cessation of consciousness. Again, the Buddha is not saying we, we, we stop thinking altogether. Although some people think that the purpose of meditation is a trance-like state. Of course it's not. You can't learn anything in a trance, can you? From the cessation of consciousness, from the cessation of ongoing thinking, rooted in the ignorance of Four Noble Truths, my words, through jhana meditation and the Eightfold Path, as the requisite condition, comes the cessation of name and form, nama rupa, self-identification. Self-identification with all phenomena, but ultimately, as we found here, self-identification with my thoughts. 
and ultimately with a self-identification with that first thought that led me down the road of ignorance. From my appropriate mindfulness came a breakthrough of understanding. From the cessation of self-identification, as a requisite condition, now comes the cessation of consciousness. Now comes the cessation of ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of foreknowledge truth. How do I do it? Through, the, through ending self-identification with all things and all thoughts. Let me ask the, again the question, and it's not a rhetorical question. Does anybody think that you can't stop self-identifying with your thoughts and with phenomena? So you all agree this is possible. And it, all it takes, and again, not to be too simplistic, but all it takes is continued Dhamma practice within the framework that this brilliant man taught us. That's all. And yet so many people struggle with this. Simple thing. Then he, he declares this. This is so important. I have attained the following path to awakening. When I read this, my first thought was, my first thought was, why the hell was I practicing all this other stuff? But then my second thought was, how did we get so confused? I have it, and this is, Nagara Sutra is not something that was buried, although it was never taught. I never heard this until I, I dived into the suttas. But there it was. The Buddha says, I have attained the following path to awakening. From the cessation of name and form comes the cessation of consciousness. From the cessation of consciousness comes the cessation of name and form. From the cessation of name and form comes the cessation of the sixth sense base. From the cessation of the sixth sense base comes the cessation of contact. From the cessation of contact comes the cessation of feeling. From the cessation of feeling comes the cessation of craving. From the cessation of craving comes the cessation of clinging and maintaining. From the cessation of clinging and maintaining comes the cessation of becoming. From the cessation of becoming comes the cessation of birth. From the cessation of birth then aging, death, sorrow, regret, pain, and distress all cease. This is the cessation of the entire mass of stress and suffering. The Buddha is also referencing dependent origination in that straightforward but rather long uh, give and take. This is the cessation of the entire mass of stress. Vision arose, understanding arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illuminating insight arose within me, with regards to things never known before. Again, he's making that point. In this way, I saw a timeless path. Notice that timeless doesn't mean uh, that we're establishing ourselves as human beings that can somehow live throughout eternity, which is how many people that are grasping after that idea would misinterpret that. He's just saying that this is a timeless path. It's appropriate and relevant throughout time. That relates to the idea of noble truths. They are appropriate and relevant throughout time, like a, no, a noble family. That's, the nobility is a family that, that leads throughout generations. In this way, I saw a timeless path to be traveled by the rightly self-awakened ones, those that choose to take it upon themselves to awaken. And what is this timeless path traveled by rightly self-awakened ones? Just this noble eightfold path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation. This is the ancient timeless path traveled by the rightly self-awakened ones. Then the Buddha says, in amazing humility, I followed this path. Following it, I came to direct knowledge 
of the stress of aging and death, direct knowledge of the origination of the stress of aging and death, meaning the stress of having a human life, direct knowledge of the cessation of the stress of aging and death, and direct knowledge of the path leading to the cessation of aging and death, meaning the Eightfold Path. Then he says, I followed this path, this path. Following it, and again, he's, he's telling us that if we follow it as he did, we will achieve this. I followed this path. Following it, I came to direct knowledge of birth, of becoming, of clinging, of craving, of feeling, of contact. I came to direct knowledge of the sixth sense phase, direct knowledge of name and form, direct knowledge of consciousness, direct knowledge of the origination of consciousness, and direct knowledge of the cessation of consciousness, direct knowledge of the path leading, and direct knowledge to the path leading to the cessation of consciousness. And then he simply says, I followed that path. Following it, I came to direct knowledge of fabrications. Remember, dependent origination. From ignorance of, of Four Noble Truths comes fabrications. I came to direct knowledge of the origination of fabrications, ignorance. I came to direct knowledge of the cessation of fabrication, knowledge. I came to direct knowledge of the Eightfold Path, leading to the cessation of fabrications. Knowing this directly, I have revealed it to monks, nuns, male lay followers, female lay, and female lay followers, meaning to everyone. You don't have to be part of a monastery to, to develop this, which was, uh, excuse me, that statement was one of the most radical statements of his time. And if most anyone else said that statement, they would have been put to death because you weren't to teach commoners, especially women, especially women during the Buddhist time, anything of any value, including so-called spiritual teachings. It simply wasn't done. The Buddha just went ahead and he taught everyone, anyone that was interested. He never made, and he never made a distinction between those that had taken vows, monks and nuns, and those that were householders. He taught the same Dhamma to everyone. And the reason why I say that is many years, from my many years in modern Buddhism, I was taught that that in, in order to get the more advanced or special teachings, you had to take vows. You had to join a monastery. Uh, and it, it just wasn't true. So, I directly, I revealed it to monks, nuns, lay followers, and female lay followers, so that this undefiled life has become powerful, rich, detailed. Now again, the Buddha's talking about, this is what he's done. He's established this Dhamma in his lifetime that this undefiled life has become powerful, rich, detailed, well-populated, widespread, and proclaimed among many beings. That's the end of the sutta. So, um, again, it, it, there's a lot of words and there's a lot of information in this sutta, but it points directly to the simple message that if we find ourselves in discontent, the way out is through understanding. And that understanding is developed through this simple and direct, easily understood and easily integrated eightfold path. So we'll go online first. Jeff, how are you tonight? I'm great, John. How about yourself? Thank you for asking. I'm great. Good. Uh, there is a lot of material here. Uh, I, I find that I can, as taken as a whole... I, I can relate to it. What 
when I get con- I get confused when I try to transfer this into some kind of linear understanding, like like seeing it as a sequence of things that have a specific sequence as opposed to um, not necessarily following. Uh, a rigid path for every thought in every situation. Does does that make any sense? Yeah, it does, and it, it, it shows a lot of insight, Jeff. The Buddha's describing an awful lot in this in the, the, the picture of the feedback loop, isn't it? He's he's really describing his entire life and his entire development of understanding. So yeah, there there's uh, there's a, an awful lot here. There is, and it's it's uh, any one of these kind of uh, uh, of self uh, referential self kind of self perpetuating loops yeah. can can occur, not necessarily in that sequential pattern. Yes, and all of them, all of them are are maintained by by the continuation of that feedback loop, which is. Which is nothing. Um, it's nothing of substance, but it, it maintains itself through clinging and maintaining through again through dependent as as taught in dependent origination, and and that is maybe this is a bit of speculation on my part, but medical science has has found that the, one of the greatest effects, and maybe we'll find one day that it has the greatest effect on our human health is stress. And this is something the Buddha is pointing out here. It's the maintenance, maintenance, maintenance of ignorance that is our our common stressor, and we all feel it. You know, we 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 feel getting agitated over things. We don't understand why, but yet we're agitated, and sometimes we act out. Sometimes we start wars over the, our agitated minds, and 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 but it's all because of that that same ignorance of Four Noble Truths that leads to this, and it leads to this feedback loop. So we can disentangle this through an eightfold path, and it, it's it's seen and shown right here, isn't it? So thank you, Jeff. Yes, it is. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Jane. Hi, John. Thank you for the teaching. Pleasure. Um, I've been noticing that um, I'm able to pa- practice more restraint. I used to be pretty much a news junkie. I mean, whatever was going on in the world, I would, you know, I wouldn't turn on the television first thing in the morning, but I would, you know, once I got involved in it, I would keep following, whether it be news, you know, or sports things. I mean, I would get so involved in everything. And now I'm able to be aware of what's happening, but then, you know, take myself out of it and and be more aware of what's happening in my own life rather than... You know, outside. Yeah, and isn't so that's that definitely a, a plus? Yeah, it's, it's a, that that that's kind of the whole point, isn't it? To not be entangled in the world. It doesn't mean we're not aware of what's going on. I mean, I I probably will watch uh, uh, Mr. Biden tonight just to see what he's got to say. But you know, it, it's uh, I don't I don't want to get too deep into it. But it, it's so nice to not be a part of that anymore. <laughs> Thanks, Jane. Hello, Brian. Hello, John. How are you? I'm good. I went from uh, great to good, but... What's that? I went from great to good rather quickly there, but... 
That's all right. You can go back to Grand Prix. <laughs> um, I found this one interesting with the, the feedback loop of name-informing consciousness, consciousness and name-inform, and, and overlaying that with dependent origination, where that is replacing ignorance and fabrications. Yep. And it, it's almost like name-informing consciousness, those are the ignorance and fabrications, and that's the feedback loop that we can't get out of. And then he takes that and he ties that into the Four Noble Truths, right? The cessation yep. of consciousness, the the path to the cessation of consciousness. So I, really interesting how he did that in this this suda for me. Yeah, and that, that's yeah. that's great insight because you can't understand this sutta without dependent without understanding dependent origination. Right, and vice versa. And and vice versa. They just they simply don't make any sense right. on standalone, but. When you when you start putting the excuse me the pieces together, they do make make perfect sense. Uh, it, it's also interesting to me this this particular sutta um, because most of the suttas I can identify them as situational, meaning it's obvious that the Buddha is saying these because of what's arising in the people in front of him. But I wonder about where this one came from, it, it, whether he just felt that it was important to. To describe his own awakening and what you know, what he had to, the breakthroughs that he had to develop, and I, I think that might be the point that he, he's saying that I I needed to have these breakthroughs and these are what we're looking for, and then it does make sense, and I I, I think that's why he taught this sutta, so we we could see his process, and I I think we all see that within ourselves, don't we? We're we're struggling again. I mean, I for years I couldn't understand why I thought. I had some of the thoughts that I had, and they, you know, I lived my whole life with these, these um, constructs that led me feeling angry or upset or afraid. And why do I keep thinking this way? And why can't I think my way out of it? And it was because my mind was was so unconcentrated. I didn't know what I was doing, and it all changed. I hope when I came to the Dhamma. Brett, good to see you tonight. Good to be here. Um, I got a lot of teaching. with uh, thoughts and feelings and, uh, and yeah it just if you do you, you know you, you just don't get out of it so yeah. and it keeps on going and yeah so thank Good you Brett thank you you've made great strides along that haven't you with recognizing name and form yeah I was had a blowout of my big truck in the middle of 78 and was in the median way out in my Lancaster yesterday for six hours and I was like yeah I'm not going to take this personally for six, wow good for you for six, for six hours maybe you know my truck's all destroyed now because of ripped out stuff of, you know ripped, ripped to pieces kind of but uh, what are you going to do yeah I mean that is, that is the right attitude it wasn't you know it wasn't personal it was just something that happens in life and yeah, yeah. Time, you're for, right, time for another trip no uh, not yet yeah yeah but uh, I remember I did that once too, but I was, I was coming back from a, me and, oh wow, what a memory! <laughs> I was coming back from a drinking binge with a friend of mine. He was driving an old Volvo. Remember the Volvos that looked like the big bugs? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And he rash. passed out and rolled it on the medium, yeah. and and the whole thing is that like the roof is twisted a little bit like this, and the windshield blew out, but it landed on its wheels and it could run. 
And we figured, what the hell, let's get out of here. And we got, we took all the way down Route 78 with no windshield. It was when we got off in Berkeley Heights that we got pulled over. I'm sorry to tell this in, in Dhamma class. And so we get pulled over, we're sitting on the side of the road. Chris was his name. He rolled down the side window with the windshield missing, and the cop put his head into the windshield. <laughs> Needless to say, we, we didn't get away with that one. But. Okay. Nearly. Yeah, we, we gave it a good, a good run. Mr. Murphy. Hi, John. Uh, I like uh, the Pennsylvania Nation uh, when you uh, present it. You always have a good presentation. I know it's uh, your, your forte there, and uh, uh, it's thought-provoking. Uh, I try to recognize the uh, Pennsylvania Nation, how it uh, occurs in my life. I mean, like, we talk about it like it's a single happening, but we can go through the Pennsylvania Nation several times throughout a day. Oh yeah, you know, and uh, oh, each yeah. time, um, yeah. each time it occurs, it like by the time you're, you know, feelings rise, you know. Okay, now I'm, I'm off to, you know, I'm off to, you know, craving, clinging, and maintaining. I'm going, I'm going for the ride, you know. So when when feelings are rising, when feelings do arise, yeah, yeah it's how can I, uh, how can I prevent, you know origination, especially when that first arrow hits me, you know, this ties in with the, you know, the two arrows, obviously, yeah. with an arrow, and it's like, oof, you know, okay, so how am I going to react at that point, and why am I reacting, why am I reacting, I ask myself, what is it that matters to me so much that I'm identifying with, yeah. that I am acting or reacting irrationally at this moment, so... I try to keep a focus on that where I am, you know, where is my mind at throughout the day as life occurs. And I try to not to place, I can we use this word a lot, not to place a value on life as life as it occurs, because if I do, then something will be compared to something else. And I'm going to either like it or not like it. So I just try to recognize it and not place emphasis on things because I do believe that uh, in the end run, that's me being self-referential and that's, yeah. where, the, that's where the problem starts. So. Uh, well said, Michael. And you're able to see that process now. You're describing it. And again, that's, that's Dharma practice. We develop that concentration and the framework of to look at what we're looking at and stop it. And again, that's just a perfect explanation of how Dhamma practice works. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Mrs. Murphy. Hello. How, how are you? I'm good. <laughs> I'm great now. I was, I was good before, now I'm great again that, if I heard Michael. <laughs> Impermanence. <laughs> um, I... Also, the same thing as Michael, um, I'm starting to recognize it more and more. But usually I recognize it when a feeling arises. That, it's always, that always gets me. I'm always like, ah, oh, a feeling is arising again. Yeah, you recognize it. <laughs> that, it, it just, that's where, I, that's where I, I get a little, yeah, that's where I recognize it. Yeah. And, and then I have a choice. You know, yeah. go on the crazy train, <laughs> keep it going, or, you know, reset myself again. Usually I can. I can reset myself. 
occasionally go down to Crazy Train. <laughs> yeah, but isn't but, that outstanding but, though? That, but it's amazing that I can actually you yeah. know, con- control, you know, have more control over myself yeah. and my thoughts, you know, and. Yeah, you used the word choice. That really is. That's the choice we have in each and every moment. We, most of us aren't aware of it, but do I choose calm or do I choose ignorance? Mm-hmm. And sometimes we choose ignorance, but more and more we're starting to choose calm. And again, like Michael just said, like you just said, it changes everything. Yeah. And it, it is just that. You know, you, you, how, um, if there's any great mystery of the universe, it's that we have a choice for calm. You know, how come we don't understand that? I mean, you know, why didn't my kindergarten teacher tell me that? You know? Yeah, no, well, she didn't. Funny that, you say, that yeah. you say that. I try to tell that to my some of my students because I have a lot of students who have, um, you know, they have autism and yeah. ADD and a lot of different things like that where their mind is not calm. And I, I tried to explain to one a boy who's constantly taking everything personal, and I said, "What do you, you know, like, what do you do? You notice like when you." When all of a sudden something like a feeling comes inside of you, and then you feel, you know, uh, taking you're taking it so personal. And he said, "Well, yes." And I said, "All right, can you stop it right there? Can you like take a breath? Maybe, maybe, maybe like take ten breaths because he would need like maybe a hundred or thing." But um, and he's like, "Yeah, I can, I can do that." And I said, wow. "Okay, well, try that. Try, try just like taking a breath, you know." And, and I said, "If you have to come into my." classroom here just to do that do that do that so a couple of you know sometimes during a day he'll come in and says i just need to take a breath now really good for I'm you like, good okay it's working for yeah. you know some somebody has to you know um like you said it's, it would be wonderful if uh teachers can teach that yeah. in school when you're a little so that you could recognize it you know from day one you know well at least you are julie good for you yeah i try i try poor things uh-huh. i try to help them yeah Again, there was a time I was working with the Lenape Foundation, which is out of Doylestown, and it's, it's uh, uh, troubled adults. Mm-hmm. And uh, just teaching them a little bit of meditation, I could see their you know, their whole demeanor changed. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, uh, it was. It's unfortunate that it ended because I was doing it for free, but the funding to actually just put those people in a classroom for an hour once a week wasn't there anymore but you know probably the, one of the best things that ever happened to him and, sure. yeah. yeah thank you john thank you hello laura hi john thank you so much do you meditate with your kitty <laughs> i she's usually not there oh. she's usually downstairs like doing her own thing being in her own being meditative cat, state yeah. Yeah, you can't <laughs> trust cats anymore <laughs> <laughs> she's dog. a good girl yeah. but it's true what everyone's saying and uh, I realize more and more like the more that I practice meditation and come and hear the teachings it helps me slow down the pace of my own life and observation so that I have that time to like you were saying tonight I didn't um, recognize that moment of the birth of ignorance when I am like Julie was saying too, which is great. You know, I have a choice here to either continue to self-identify with my thoughts, which lessens my concentration and then leads to reckless decisions like, I don't know, like with the, the news and everything, it, it's yeah. really sickening. Not it that is. we have immediate family there, but we had, you know, um, great 
previous generations there, but then I kind of went down this path of egotistical thinking, oh, I'm going to go to the protest tomorrow in Times Square and, you know, be there. And, but then I recognized that that was just, you know, egotistical because I would be neglecting responsibilities here and that there are other ways I can, you know, show support or be aware of it. Again, pure Dhamma practice, and, and you're reaping the, the benefits of it. Would you, and again, you can just say, I prefer not to answer. Would you say that your deepening level of jhana of concentration is bringing a more uh, gentle attitude towards yourself? I would say yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah Isn't that remarkable, though? But, but not, yeah, it is remarkable. Not in the sense like, leading to like a greater concentration yeah like gentleness but paired with yes you know, concentration yeah they're, they're, like they're really one in the same like, thing yeah i'm sorry i interrupted you i didn't oh, hear no it's okay i just mean like not not like an unawareness of what other people are going through or you know suffering with or or that you know my previous buddhist exper- experiences with buddhism like oh just and universal yeah. like calmness and interconnectedness and that was just so confusing but this is just so much more powerful I guess in the way just yeah. that really focus concentration and you make much better decisions that way yeah and again it's just, just it's it's the most um, practical and safe way to live in the world especially now with yeah. what's going on because we can't we can't do much about what's going on, but we can always attend to the quality of our mind, no matter what's going on. And this practice gives us that. Thanks, Lord. Good evening, Dhamma Teacher Rob. Good evening. <clears throat> yeah, I could spend so many hours on this sutta. Yeah. I have, <laughs> and uh, every time I do, I I, I try to to teaches the part to, to, to actually get to understand the, the person that was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I, I just got stuck for three hours on that, that first line when I was an unawakened bodhisattva. Yeah. It's like, holy shit, what is he saying here? Yeah. Am um, I supposed to be that way? Well, yeah, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and you know, and what was he, what was it that drove this man to to, you know, shave his head, throw away his clothes, and and walk out. And what, it was in essence billions of dollars, too. Yeah. A, a life of luxury. Yeah. Yeah. All of that, which he, he already called a confining place. Yeah. And and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get into that, that, that mind of, of him at that time. You know, to call that a confining place and and yet walk out on his young wife and his newborn son. All of it was a confining space, including the bodhisattva idea, which is what young men followed. 
it was very common during the Buddhist time that young men, you know, say mid-20s, late-20s, would leave their home, no matter what that situation was, in search of understanding or enlightenment. And it was, it was accepted. Now, there's some people that said, how could the Buddha call himself compassionate when he leave a wife and a newborn baby? Because of that. Because yeah, it was, he, he it was honored yeah, that. Yeah, he, he didn't leave them destitute. No, no, and they, they were well taken care of, and and also it was revered. The, you know, this this is the whole idea of alms was that that we would we would take care of spiritual seekers who are wandering around northern India and southern Nepal because their developing of understanding was good for everyone, and that was the idea. So the 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 bodhisattva or bodhisatta ideal ideal was built into the culture, much like it's built into modern culture. It, just, it's, it has traveled for 2,600 years. That the true path to awakening, human awakening, is basically compassion. And compassion without understanding leads to great tragedy, doesn't it? And I always go back to like the Christian Crusades or the modern Jihad or all the other atrocities we've foisted on other people in the name of God or religion. That's the Bodhisattva vow, and when I and it's the salvific vow. So when, when you hear me say that the Buddha never saw himself as a savior, he didn't teach a salvific religion, because once I see myself as a savior, I can beat the hell out of you if you get in my way, and it's justified because I'm saving the world. And look what's going on. I mean, we can see it, in we can see it in, in local governments all the way up to what's going on in Ukraine. That same idea. I'm going to save the world. Hitler believed he was saving the world from his point of view. Putin, as narrow-minded as this man is, believes he's savior. It's, and where is that rooted in? It's no more complicated than ignorance of foreign noble truth. It manifests in, in horrible, horrible ways. But the cause is still the same. You think that the Buddha, as, as he went out, as he went forth, that he saw himself at that point as a, as a possible savior? No, I think he was certain he wasn't. And that's why he did what... That, basically, the Buddha, the Buddha sat in one place and waited for people to come to him mm-hmm. while he sent other people to walk around northern India. But he also did. He walked around northern India. No, I, I mean, but, before his awakening, when he went out. Oh, he, he, wouldn't, he didn't really know what he was looking for. He knew what he, what he didn't want. Yeah. And so he studied with these different teachers who were revered. They were, you know, it would be like us... Um, sitting with the Dalai Lama or someone mm-hmm. of that stature. And he studied their practices. He mastered them very quickly. And so much so that the Dalai Lama of, their, of his time asked Siddhartha to come with them and, and be their representative. Alara Kalama and Udeka Ramaputta both said that. And they were teaching something that, that is still taught today. the variations of nothingness and emptiness. And he rejected them as not... He didn't say they're bad or evil or these people are stupid or anything like that. He simply said, these do not lead to my goal of understanding. Understanding what? Understanding what it means to be a human being. Because they were teaching things that had to do with not being a human being. With something other than self. Remember how the Buddha teaches that so many times. We become anything other than self because we don't understand what a self is. What is that? It's ignorance. If I become anything other than what I am, it has to be out of ignorance. What else could it be? And so why would I do that? Why would I insist that I must become something other than what I am? Well, for one thing, nobody taught me. But the other, the other thing is the inherent I'm making is part of being a human being. 
because I get distracted by sickness, aging, and death. I don't want it. I want my human life. I don't care if your human life is tough, but this one has to be better. It has to be whatever that ideal is in my mind, whether it's more money, more power, a big long table like Mr. Putin seems to love, whatever it might be, a brand new Ferrari, all these things that we decide we need to, to separate ourselves and be better than what we are, be something other than self, or simply be a human being. With what I am, you know, 5'7", never going to play for the Yankees, but that's okay. I'm having a human life. I mean, if somebody taught me that when I was 15, maybe life would have been different. Even that's a silly thing to say, because my life can't be different. There's not one moment in my life that could be different, including this moment. The next moment could be different depending on the quality of my mind. If my mind progresses from ignorance to awakening, to understanding, then the next moment will be different. If not, it's going to be the same thing over and over again. Thank you, Ron. Hello, David. Hello, John. I'm good tonight. Thank you. Hello, Matt. John, good to see you. Good to see everybody. Uh, I like what Brian said about... Um, Ignorance and mental fabrications with name and form and consciousness. I thought that was a good, a good highlight. And I also like what Michael said. And I think that Michael, I, I, I think looking at dependent origination as a something that happens multiple times a day like mm. I got dependent origination or something like that is 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 not correct in that in that dependent origination is the activity of consciousness that's that's what mm. consciousness is doing is what is what does the buddha say here he says build it what is what is then i had the thought what initiates consciousness what is the requisite condition that consciousness is dependent on for arising is name and form. So that the fact that basically we're never not in dependent origination. Dependent origination is the condition for ignorance. Right. So Michael's experiencing his mindfulness. Yeah, you're seeing the manifestations of ignorance of four noble truths moment by moment. He's aware of when he is being unskillful or skillful and if you lay out then the four the four foundations of mindfulness of your your breath in your body, your feelings, your thoughts, it, that's what you're experiencing, which is yeah. your practice. Yeah. The the uh, one of the difficulties I think with understanding dependent origination is we want it to be a linear thing. We want to be able to define it moment by moment in our life. And Dependent origination occurs, and I think I've said this a few times, it, it almost occurs out of time. In other words, we can't really see the steps of dependent origination from ignorance to fabrications to consciousness to name and form. Those happen out of time. But what we can see is the manifestations of ignorance in this moment. And that, I think Michael was describing that. Over and over again, we see these manifestations of ignorance. That's when... That's when the sequence of dependent origination comes manifest is in 
giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. That's when we can see it. The process um, can only be understood uh, from the overall picture, from gaining that understanding of Four Noble Truths. And we can see it occur, as Michael described. Are you seeing it? Are you, what you're seeing is restraint or the lack of restraint at the point of contact. That's what you're seeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, Maya? That's what you're yes. describing, isn't it? You're, you're recognizing the lack of restraint in this moment. Yes. That's a good way to put it, too. Whenever it occurs, actually. And so then, then the the resolution is: I, my, my, I'm unrestrained in this moment. What do I do? Right. Yeah. Just as Michael said, you restrain you restrain yourself with your breath. I also understand what Matt is saying, also, in that this is it's it's born of ignorance. Yeah. So this is this is our our condition. We're we're set up for the tenth origination until we recognize our own ignorance. That is and, the condition. Yes. yes. That's yeah, the yeah, condition. yeah. Yes. If you want to put it that way, I never heard it explained that way or yeah. heard it here, but like uh, I certainly understand it. Yes. Yeah, that's a, that is that's that's a good way to see it because it, it dependent origination is the condition. Yes. Period. It's you know, it's what we're born into, and again, that's what the Buddha said. We're it, the, the world is aflame because of the results of dependent origination, the results of ignorance. And it all comes back to that. You know, again, that's why I say it's, it's simple and everybody yells at me. But it is simple. It, 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 because it, it's simple because it resolves on one easily understood point, although it's clouded by, by our own uh, ongoing eye-making. Right again, it right. pierces and right through it. That's the, you know, from my appropriate mindfulness came a breakthrough of understanding. Yeah. What is the from appropriate my form? From name and form as the requisite condition comes consciousness. Yeah. We're, and we just, we get caught up into it, you know. But the results of that, um, from the perspective of a wise Dhamma practitioner, is the absurdity of eye-making. I think, I think it was Jeff and I that were having a laugh about this the other day. That, uh, you know, just the ongoing expression of ignorance is absurd when we look at it. And again, we can look at current events, how absurd they are, but you know, certainly worse than that. But just the idea that I can make myself be something other than what I am. Center fielder for the Yankees. It's absurd, isn't it? But when we understand the absurdity, we get to laugh at it, too. And we should. We should laugh at, at foolishness and absurdity. But also understand the seriousness of me living my life in the most calm and peaceful way that I can. And that's up to me. That's up to my choice in this moment. Each and every moment is that choice. Each and every moment holds the potential for further ignorance or for calm. And that's up to us. That's tonight's class. That's a good... So we're going to continue with, I think there's uh, 12, so there's 11 more classes in this particular structured study of the Eightfold Path. And I think it fits right in with our truth of happiness. It just this is this is how we practice, and we'll get a, a really good in depth look on look at what that is and how it feels. So, uh, any other questions or comments? All right. Um, just a quick note on our retreat coming up. If you're if you're going or you decide to go, please uh, reserve your space as soon as possible because we're running out of space rather quickly. And John, would you will you make an announcement if if the placeless zone becomes available as well? Yeah, we're we're already just about full in our uh, in there's two buildings called Timeless Zen and Priceless Zen. Uh, we're just about full in Timeless Zen, so I'm going to inquire about going into the other building. But uh, I got a feeling that's going to fill up quick too. <laughs>
June uh, June 29th to July 3rd is our next retreat. All the info's on the website and in the email. So, okay, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. <laughs> and these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. And just to make the point, metta means loving kindness. And you'll see in the sutta, we first express that towards ourselves, which is through Dharma practice, and then we can express it to all others. The Buddha's words. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, admitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. See how it relates directly to our sutta today? Peace, everyone. See you all. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. See you, Jay. Yeah. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.